Welcome to the Functional Breeding Podcast. I'm Jessica Heckman, and I'm here interviewing folks about how to breed dogs for function and for health, behavioral and physical. This podcast is brought to you by the Functional Dog Collaborative, an organization founded to support the ethical breeding of healthy, behaviorally sound dogs. The FDC's goals include providing educational, social, and technical resources to breeders of both purebred and mixed breed dogs. You can find out more at functionalbreeding.org or at the Functional Breeding Facebook group, which is a friendly and inclusive community. I hope you have fun and learn something. Hey listeners, it's Sarah. Jessica and I recorded this podcast before the recent news that the Tampa Bay SBCA has paused the For All Dogs pilot program. We really appreciate that they have listened to the community feedback that they've received on this program, which has led to the pause. But we still really think that the issues that led to the creation of this program are relevant for discussion. So we decided to release this podcast anyway. We hope you find it thought-provoking beyond just this pilot program, as that was our original intent. Cheers. Hello, Sarah. Hello, Jessica Heckman. This is a a crossover episode between the Functional Breeding Podcast, which is yours, and CogDog Radio, which is mine. And the reason this is happening is because whenever you and I talk nonstop about something offline, we decide to make it a podcast, pretty much. I mean, not whenever, because sometimes those conversations are not for everyone, but this conversation. Sometimes they're about how bad my dog is. Yes. (laughs) Occasionally. And so, you know, et cetera. So let's have you just get us started. What, what's the thing? What's the, what, what are we talking about today? Yeah. What's the thing? So I think it was like two weeks ago at this point, SPCA Tampa Bay, which is a shelter in Florida uh, announced this pilot program called For All Dogs. And it's a partnership between the shelter and a broker and a pet store. So the... A puppy, a puppy broker. A pu- sorry, a puppy broker. So Pinnacle Pet is a puppy broker and Sunshine Puppies is a pet store that sells puppies. And the shelter is having this pilot program partnership with them where the idea is that Retired breeding dogs will be rehomed through the shelter and there will be some puppies and they describe them as perfectly imperfect is their phrase. So the idea is that some puppies that might be harder for the pet store to sell. So puppies that have very manageable health problems or are, you know, mismarked or something like that, those would come in to the pet store. Um, they, there aren't a whole lot of details about what those puppies, you know, what is a manageable health problem? What kind of mismarks? My suspicion is they're still sort of figuring out and, uh, and seeing what they get. But so that was, that was announced about two weeks ago and we've been talking about it a lot. Pretty much since it, since it was launched. Yes. And to clarify the perfectly imperfect puppies, which we're not totally sure what that means. And, the retired breeding animals will be available for adoption through Tampa Bay SPCA yes. via this broker. And for folks who might not be aware of kind of 
the way things work. And I do think we're going to get into that a little bit. When you have puppies for sale in brick and mortar stores, they have been kind of, there's, there's a middleman, a broker between the person who produced those puppies and the store. And so this broker is also now between the people who produced these dogs and the shelter. Yes. Yes. Correct. Correct. Okay. And the idea is that these will be specific types of dogs. Um, so they'll be smaller dogs. Uh, typically on the younger, the adult dogs will typically be on the younger end. Um, obviously the puppies will be younger and they'll typically be purebred or designer mix. So doodles were specifically mentioned. Why is this happening? Why would a shelter choose to do this? So that's a great question. There's not a place, a specific place where they're very clear about here's exactly why we decided to enter into this partnership. Although there's a bunch of information online and you and I have been digging into that. So one place that we looked, there's a webpage associated, the pro, the program is called For All Dogs. So there's a webpage associated with that. There's also some interesting interviews. So the CEO of the shelter, Dr. Martha Bowden, has said various things. And so I think there's a bunch of different reasons why they ended up doing this. But um, one of the things that she has said is that she's hoping that bringing in the kinds of dogs that are frequently sought by the public. So again, I mentioned smaller dogs, younger dogs, and purebred or designer mixed dogs, that she's hoping that that's going to help attract potential adopters to the shelter. And we happen to know that this shelter is on a street with five separate puppy puppy selling pet stores are also on that street within a, a couple miles of them, I think. Um, I have this, this visual of them sort of surrounded by pet stores. But in other words, if someone goes to the shelter and doesn't find the kind of dog that they're looking for, it's very, very, very easy for them to turn around and on that same trip, just go to a pet store to get exactly what they're looking for. And that is something that can be very problematic for a shelter. But also something that I think shelters don't, or that I shouldn't say shelters specifically, but the animal welfare community and the rescue community is not really talking very much about that problem. There's this feeling that we really would like people to go to shelters and to to get what's there. But it certainly was the case when I was working in shelter medicine. I did a shelter medicine internship and there was a lot of discussion at that time of, you know, if we have a lot of one type of dog on the adoption floor, so typically that would look like a medium-sized, heavy-set, blocky-headed dog, which we would refer to as a pit bull type, high-energy, athletic. And if the range of dogs that they have for adoption are primarily that, then having a couple of alternative types of dogs mixed in. The idea is that that brings people in the door and that then someone who comes in the door looking for the Yorkie might end up adopting the pit bull mix. So that, that is one of the, and they didn't say all of that specifically, but um, so the, the one quote that we got from the Gabber newspaper is if someone has a pug in their mind as their ideal dog, and they see a pug advertised through our website, through this transfer program, that brings the person to our campus and gets them excited about the work that we do. So that's a quote from Martha Bowden. Okay. So something that I think is going to spike feelings, particularly in the animal welfare world, which 
full disclosure, not a world that I, not sheltering specifically is not a world I'm involved in, but I do consider myself well-versed and very much involved in the welfare of dogs in general. Something that is going to come up is this point that Martha Bowden, the CEO of this shelter is making, which is that the shelter might lack diversity of dogs which is creating a problem as far as traffic flow through the shelter. And I don't think we hear about this lack of diversity problem. I think what we hear about is that dogs are dying by the truckload and shelters are full and how dare anybody buy a dog from a breeder. I, that's what I hear. And I don't hear many folks talking about this lack of diversity. So is this a potential good thing that this problem is being highlighted? What what does it implicate that this problem is being highlighted? I think that there's sort of how to come at this. So, and, and we're going to talk about this more in detail throughout this podcast, but I think that there's ways that we as a community, a dog loving community, have been thinking about where dogs come from and what the role of shelters are in where dogs come from. And I, one thing, you know, when I first saw this, this, the announcement of this partnership, one of the very first thoughts I had was, oh my God, is this going to be a chance for us to really talk about it, to really talk about re-envisioning where dogs come from and what the, what the good and bad things are about the current system for where dogs come from, what the role of shelters is and where dogs come from, what the role of breeders is in where dogs come from. I was actually, I had a moment of being really excited about this is going to be a great opportunity for us to really talk about all of those things. Now, there's very concerning stuff as well about what what this particular program looks like, which we're also going to talk about. But I do hope that we can turn this into an opportunity for, for the whole community to come together and have this conversation about wait a minute, stuff has changed since the 1970s, right? Like, I feel like we all, um, the community sort of came together and, and, and set the way we think about where dogs come from in the 70s and the 80s, a bit in the 90s, and stuff has really changed since then. And it's time to reevaluate. Well, it is. And I think I'd like to highlight for a second that dogs don't come from shelters or pet stores. That might be where you acquire it. But they butt off that, of trees, right? Do they butt off of trees? Right. Yeah, that's what happens. And then you go pick them in the dog orchard and then you take them to the farmer's market. But, you know, it is like saying that eggs come from the grocery store. Right. Eggs don't come from the grocery store. You buy them there, but they come out of a chicken's body on a farm. And it matters what that farm looks like, in my opinion, and farm is in quotations here in the same way that I think breeder is in quotations in this conversation a lot of the time. And so let me, I want to circle back to something that you said that is still ringing in my ears. When you said the person might see the Yorkie on the website, go in and wind up with the pit bull mix. I did not feel good about that, but I do think that the shelter probably does. And let me so so here's the question. Is it important for people to be able to get the kind of dog they actually want in a shelter? Or is this just, it's what's important is that the dog gets out of the shelter? Right. Do people yeah, have I think good that's, reasons? Do, are there good reasons for preferring the Yorkie over the pity? Right. Such a, such a big and important question. So 
And and I want to say it's not completely unfounded to think that someone will come in looking for one thing and come out with another thing, right? Of and I've seen not. that happen no. for yes. sure in shelters, right? Um, there was there was this lovely moment in a shelter when the father brought the daughter because they wanted a particular kitten, and the kitten had been adopted in the time that they had been driving to the shelter, and the father was enraged, and the daughter adored this elderly black cat and really wanted to bring this cat home. Um, so that kind of stuff absolutely does happen. But I think it's also important to really think about how different kinds of dogs fit into different kinds of households differently, right? And so, I mean, the most obvious thing is if you're coming from a housing situation where there are rules about what size dog you can have, there are plenty of people who make excellent dog owners but cannot have a dog over 35 pounds or whatever the number is because of where they live. Um, because of, of rules of their housing situation. There are people who do not want a young and athletic dog because they cannot provide the exercise and enrichment needs for a young and athletic dog. There are people who do want a dog that is lower shedding because they have allergies that can be better controlled if the dog's hair is removed intentionally by a groomer rather than falling off all over the house. What are some other ones, Drumming? Fill, fill in some other examples. Well, for me, a lot of it's about environment that you expect the dog to live in. Not all dogs are suited for all environments. And I don't think people think about that as much as they should potentially. But, you know, I know my, I have a sister who used to work in adoptions in a big city shelter. And she used to come home and just be enraged every single night about trying to explain to people what this particular dog they were interested in might need and having the people just smile and nod and take it home anyway. I think it's, sir, you know, and then really when she'd get mad is when the dog was returned a week later and this particular shelter had rules around returns. And so if the dog got returned twice, um, the dog was dead. So it made, it was very high stakes for her to try to make these things clear to these people. And she failed a lot of the time because they were like, but this one is what I like to look at. And she wound up taking one of those dogs home that got returned a couple times <laughs> because it was actually a great dog. And so people, but people might know that they need the dog to live. They need the dog to go on a walk with them every day in the city park. For instance, I had some clients who adopted a dog from a shelter. This was years and years and years ago. And they were, they had bought this great house on this beautiful city park, famous park in Colorado. And the dream was to take the dog for a walk around this beautiful park where they bought this house every single day. And they adopted the dog from the shelter and the dog was an absolute nightmare on leash, extreme reactivity to anything that moves, cars, children, dogs, anything. And that was quite simply a very bad fit for them. And it was not fair for anyone involved. And so if you're asking me <laughs> if, it's, if it's important for people to have the kind of dog that's right for them, I think that there's very little that's more important than that when we're, talk, when we're having this conversation. Yeah, I think that's true, that the fit is is incredibly important for the household to run smoothly and for the welfare of the human and for the welfare of the dog. I do want to emphasize um, to those listening that Sarah did not mean that all pit bulls are terrible on leash or that all Yorkies no, are good on leash. <laughs> no, in fact, the dog <laughs> I was talking about had no pity in her. So like, right, like no. And also there are no 
blanket statements about breeds that we're making, but I will make this blanket statement that if you are looking for tiny fluffy lap animal and you leave with big muscular athletic animal, you didn't get what you wanted and vice versa. If you walk in looking for, if I walk in looking for my next sports companion and I leave with, you know, geriatric small thing with luxating patellas, like I, I didn't get what I came for either. Like it's, there's a variety of what things might be, what people might be looking for. And I do think it's important for them to be able to get what they need. I am not sure about the importance of the shelter providing what they need, but I, that is a conversation that I think is bigger than this, this one. Yeah. So I think we're both sympathetic to, you know, a major part of a shelter's role is to rehome the dogs in their care that are adoptable to, to save the dogs, whatever that looks like. We're both extremely sympathetic to that. And just sort of want to open up the conversation here around what the most appropriate way to do that is that is mindful of the welfare of the dogs and the welfare of the animals. And that that can be a really difficult balance from time to time. But I think what we also wanted to talk about was that in this question of if someone goes to a shelter and the right dog for them isn't there then where should they go next? And you and I both strongly would like for them not to go to a pet store. So where we would like them to go is to, I'm going to put the the phrase good breeder or responsible breeder or ethical breeder in quotes, because it's not a, a well operationalized <laughs> phrase. Um, and I think we can talk more about what that means. And, and certainly that is what the Functional Dog Collaborative does to a large extent is try to have conversations about what are all the different facets that go into really doing a good job of producing puppies. So I want to then read another quote from Martha Bowden, um, where she's talking about conversations that she had with uh, Pinnacle Pets and Sunshine Puppies about good breeding. So I'll start the quote now. It says, and the, the first thing that came out of my COO's mouth that I think made us all kind of stop on our tracks was that she said, you keep talking about a good breeder. Well, I've never seen one because I don't get called in when a breeder is doing a great job. My team, so side note, the, uh, you know, I think this is probably true for a lot of shelter teams. My team gets called in when it's a disaster. So forget any marketing that somebody might be doing. I've been there. I've walked through, you know, overwhelming facilities where there's all kinds of horrific things happening all around us. That's all I know. So you and your team, you're going to have to help me understand what a good breeder is. Close quote. Yeah. So that's Martha Bowden speaking to uh, Pinnacle, the representative of Pinnacle Pets and uh, Sunshine Puppets. And I think you and I feel very strongly that we would love for shelters to connect with really high quality breeders. I'll put that in quotes too, right? I think we would love when someone comes in and is really has good reasons to want a Yorkshire Terrier puppy, that a shelter is unlikely to have that. And we'd like the shelter to be able to direct them to where they could go to get such a creature. So, so sort of handing it back to you, Sarah, to talk maybe about how we felt about the fact that when the shelter started looking for other solutions and they started looking for good breeders, this is what they encountered. Well, I'm doing my best to 
control myself because this is a crossover episode and it's not just my podcast where I get to pop off and say whatever I want. So no, we're nice on my podcast. Right. So nice. So (laughs) boil all my feelings down to the fact that I am really frustrated and I continue to be frustrated about the sheltering and animal welfare sector and their deep lack of understanding of the breeding world. And I think that this demonstrates it beautifully because if you ask a person whose job it is to circulate puppies out of kennel-based high-volume breeding operations, regardless of how clean and beautiful they might be, to explain to you what a good breeder is, In my humble opinion, you have not asked the right person to explain that to you. I am of the opinion that a commercial breeding operation does not need to be, you know, cue the Sarah McLachlan song and the dogs are living in squalor to be bad. And also, you know, the word bad is probably not descriptive enough. In my opinion, dogs belong in homes with relationships with humans, relationships with other dogs with enriched lives. And I don't think that that can be provided even in the best type of facility that we're talking about. And so I, again, circle back to, it is, I want these conversations happening, just like you said, I would love it if shelters and the sheltering world had a better understanding of where dogs might come from and what a truly reputable source might be so that they could better provide for the community when they can't find what they need in the pet store, or sorry, in the shelter. And it's very unfortunate to me that the conversation was had between the Martha Bowden, the CEO of the shelter, and the representative of Pinnacle Pet. It is really, really, that's unfortunate to me because in my opinion, probably nobody in that room actually understands what it looks like when a breeder pours their entire heart and soul into a breeding project or even a litter, neither of them left that room understanding what that looks like. And those are the kinds of breeders that we at Functional Dog Collaborative want to hold up and support and make more of. And I feel as though, even though this conversation is radical and maybe the start of something, I think it was unfortunate. I think it's the wrong conversation or potentially between the wrong people. Yeah. And I, and one of the, the things that makes me saddest is that I see this as an opportunity for a shelter to say, let's, let's have the conversation about the fact that we are not able to provide the public with all of the diversity of dog Mm -hmm. types that they are looking for. And therefore, we're going to endorse them going someplace else for the types that we can't provide. And I feel like the endorsement has come down on pet stores. And I feel mm-hmm. like I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep circling back to this framing of where dogs come from, that we have this framing of they come from pet, they come from shelters or they come from pet stores. And maybe there are some responsible breeders in the mix. But those are sort of the two big places that we talk about when we have big fights on Instagram and TikTok, right? And that we consider them at opposite ends of these sort of ethical spectrum. And I feel like there 
that if you limit the discussion to those two options, then when the shelter starts grappling with where are we going to find the, the dogs to supply the people who aren't here for the high energy, highly athletic, muscular dog, where are those other dogs going to come from? Then they're like, well, in our frame, what we have is pet stores. That's the other option. And also, if we frame pet stores as the puppies all come from puppy mills and puppy mills are all the dogs living in squalor and all you've seen is the terrible disasters. And then you go look and you're surprised to see, oh, well, they actually are living in spacious kennels. They're perfectly clean. There's plenty of staff. They have good veterinary care. People are taking them out and exercising them. People are playing with the puppies every day. They're doing some socialization. You know, then you're sort of like, well, that that seems good. And what our point here is, that is the bare minimum. And we mm-hmm. want so much more for the dogs that come into our house as our, as our beloved companions. And I do think that this move, this Foral Dogs program, endorses the approach to breeding that you just described. Right. And there's a, because there's a lot of public trust in the sheltering system, I'm worried about that. And I do think that just like people are pretty unaware of where their food comes from, I think that the general public is also pretty unaware of where dogs come from. And there is a huge range of what a commercial kennel can look like. It can look like what people think of when they think the phrase puppy mill. It can look like what you just described. And the bottom line though, is that, so even if you're okay with, clean, spacious kennels, et cetera, because a lot of people probably would be, to be honest. Even if you're okay with that, we still have a problem with this usage of a broker and selling these puppies as a product rather than pairing these puppies with the correct home for them, which is what in my, which is one of the marks of a good breeder to me is somebody who cares about where each of those puppies goes, is willing to take it back if it doesn't work out and carefully places each puppy with the right home. That to me is what a good breeder does. It's not what is happening with these breeders that are working with Pinnacle Pet and the Sunshine Pets store. And just to jump in and clarify, what Sarah is saying here is about how pet stores place puppies. We don't actually have any knowledge about how much care goes into how the shelter places dogs. Um, yes, I'm not talking about the shelter. So she is talking yes. about pet stores here and about the implicit the... endorsement of pet stores. Yes. I well and I there's an implicit endorsement of pet stores with this deal, but also again circling back to the fact that people don't understand where puppies come from. These brokers work with the there's a variety of ways that the brokers get these puppies out to people because brick and mortar pet stores are falling out of favor. And so it isn't just pet stores to me. I'm not super talking about the pet store. I'm talking about the commercial breeding operations that then utilize the broker, regardless of where they go after that. I'm sure, actually, I would put my money on the shelter doing a better job placing the dogs with people than the pet stores are doing. Because they have an adoption counselor and you go in and you talk to the counselor. And they can say no. There's no adoption counselor in the pet store. It, there's just a right. credit card machine. So I'm sure that they're doing a much better job. My there's a 16-year-old kid behind the counter. You don't trust them? I, I, and, and who am I to say, right? Right. Um, <laughs> but 
if we are worried about, and I am worried about, the shelter endorsing this this approach to breeding that is commercial kennels into a broker and then into wherever, pet stores or websites or whatever it is. Right. So, so neither of us like the idea of the pet store model or the broker model or even really the high volume kennel model being endorsed. What we really would have liked to have seen is... Um, and we, what we still hope can come out of this whole conversation is this shelter or the shelter world endorsing um, sort of more, more explicitly than they have people going and working with, again, the, the type of breeders that we've been talking about. There's not, there's not a good categorical term for. So I think, I think it's probably time to, to take a step back because we've been talking about how people don't maybe have all the information about where dogs come from. And we've also talked about how dogs do not come from shelters. So or trees. there is, they come from a breeder, uh, you know, intentionally or unintentionally. And then the puppies, and, and we're talking about puppies here, and then puppies, you know, would be brought to a shelter, um, but shelters are not breeding dogs. Yeah. So I think both of us feel very strongly that we wish that there were not an endorsement by a shelter of this type of breeding, right? Of kennel-based high-volume breeding of a breeder who hands puppies to brokers without asking about what the end home is going to be, of the broker being involved, of the pet store and the, you know, the puppy being transported to the pet store and then the pet store presumably not having um, as careful a placement as a shelter or as a breeder would do. So what we would have hoped for and what we still are kind of hoping can come out of this conversation that we're, we're hoping people to, will start having is, you know, what should the shelter have looked to? Who should they have endorsed? And that, it turns out, is actually a pretty complicated question too. And in order to answer it, I want to take a step back. So Sarah said a couple times how a lot of us don't really know where dogs actually are coming from in the United States, most of them. So just to give an overview of what is and is not known about that, there are, um, we, we know there's roughly 88 million dogs in the United States. We know that they have about an 11 year lifespan on average. So that obviously varies a lot by, by breed, by size, uh, by type of dog, but overall dogs about an 11 year lifespan. So the calculation is that it seems that about 8 million new dogs are appearing. They are budding on trees. They are appearing from somewhere in the United States every year to keep that population steady. This is aside from any conversation about whether the population is too large. Uh, we're just talking about where dogs are coming from. So there's about 8 million of them that appear a year. So and we can we can refer to these as the the new puppies for the year or of replacement dogs. And here's the thing, there's very little known about where all of the 8 million are coming from. We know we have some statistics which I'll talk about now to help us get a grasp of what we do know. We know that in 2019 shelters had about 500,000 puppies come through them. 
unsurprisingly, with the pandemic, those numbers dropped dramatically in 2020. Um, as of 2022 and what we know so far for 2023, the numbers are still not back to 2019 levels. So there's fewer than 500,000 puppies coming through shelters currently. But when we're talking about where replacement dogs come from, shelters are, in a sense, producing. Obviously, they're not breeding them. But if you are looking for puppies that butt off of trees and, and come to shelters, about 500,000 is the number we're looking at. And these are very, these are sort of ranges. They're vague numbers, right? So if you want to say it's a bit larger or a bit smaller, that's fine. They're not, they're not hard numbers. And that is shelters that does exclude rescue groups, uh, which there's not very good reporting on rescue groups. There is not reporting for how many puppies are sold through pet stores. So remember I said before that we have this idea that it's all about shelters and pet stores, that those are, you know, the one is good and the other is bad. Um, and there's that dichotomy. So looking at the pet store end of the scale, there's not reporting for how many puppies are sold through pet stores. The number that we do have, some of us who are part of these conversations were at a summit in uh, 2022, which was attended by an executive pet of Petland. Petland is the largest puppy store selling chain in the United States right now. And he reported that they sell sort of a similar order of magnitude, 500,000 or less annually uh, puppies. So what that means then is that if you take the number of puppies sort of coming out of shelters and the number of puppies coming out of traditional brick and mortar pet stores, that's maybe a million um, possibly less than a million. So that's about an eighth of the total number of puppies that are mm. actually appearing in the United States every year. So we're still looking at where where do those other 7 million come from? And those come from breeders, a wide range of what we mean by breeders. Um, I want to note here that one of the board members of the Functional Dog Collaborative, Joyce Briggs, who is also the president of ACC&D, the Alliance for Contraception in Cats and Dogs, is right now working to fund a study to learn where the other 87.5% of dogs are coming from. And she has some funding for it. She's still working on getting more funding. I'm super excited about that study. I really, really, really want to know the details on exactly how many dogs are coming from sort of what, you know, what breeders of what kinds of practices. Right. So this um, is us so, saying that if you want to give Joyce some funding for that, we yes. can connect, we can connect, we you, can connect if, you. If that is what you would like to do. And then I just yeah. want to add, because I think this is an interesting statistic that doesn't tell us again enough about sourcing, but the AKC, the American Kennel Club registers about a million puppies a year. Yep. And, and that's an interesting one, right? Because a lot of people feel, probably not the people listening to these podcasts, but a lot of people do feel that if it's an AKC registered dog, that means that there is um, some kind of, maybe not guarantee, but some kind of assurance of, of health and good behavior. Yeah, it's kind of considered, I think, among the general public, it's it's like, well, this dog has papers, right? This dog is, right. you know, whatever. Like, it's kind of a right. thing. And so, I, so some of the puppies that are being produced by these commercial kennels are going to be AKC registered, some of right. them, not all of them. And then some of the puppies that are the puppies that I was talking about, the home-based, really passionate breeder who's doing a fantastic job, some of those puppies are going to be AKC registered. In fact, quite a few of them are if they are purebred dogs. I would say, but gosh, that still leaves us with a huge number of puppies. A lot. 
So yeah, in fact, really I'd say, from. yeah, and I'd say there's, so there's, you know, how many commercial breeding operations are there that are not selling through brick and mortar pet stores? So we're going to talk about internet sourcing in a minute. And then, then you get into the sort of individual breeders and there's a massive range of, of practices there. And all along that range of practices, puppies could be AKC registered because it helps you yes. sell them. Um, if, you know, if profit is what you're looking for, or if you're just looking to sort of make a statement about the fact that your dogs are purebred and, and that is what you do, you register with the AKC. So it is, it is used, AKC registration is used all along that spectrum of breeding. Yes, it is. All right. So sourcing is, sourcing is a complex thing. It also varies really widely across this enormous country that we're talking about. Cause I think that's another, it's another thing we can sometimes get into um, is if I speak to, you know, if we're speaking the same, you know, similar conversation to somebody in a country that is itself smaller than like the state of California, which is a lot of countries, it's a different conversation. When we're talking about the United States, it is so vast and so huge and so different and different uh, different parts of the United States are almost like their own country. Like they're so different. And so therefore sourcing looks different depending on where you are. For sure. You know, some examples that we came up with were like a retired wealthy couple living in New England. Um, and I can tell you that, you know, for example, they might go to a shelter, they might go, you know, New England, home of the Labrador Retriever. You know, we have a lot of those here. So they might go find someone who's breeding even um, hunting type Labradors. Um, that's what we did when I was a, a kid living in Massachusetts, actually. We went to Vermont and some found someone who was breeding labs to hunt. And that was, a, she was a really lovely dog, Penny. Yeah. So you've got, you have cultural differences. You've also got, you know, maybe we've got a young person working in tech in Seattle. So diverse urban scenario, that person might source their dog differently. That person's not driving to Vermont to look at a litter of labs. Right. Um, <laughs> that person right. might be going into the shelter and what our shelters look like here is also extremely different from, for instance, SBCA Tampa Bay. And so that this actually adds complication to this sourcing conversation because depending on where the person is when we have the conversation, depending on where the person lives, their perspective is going to be different about it. And I think kind of probably the one thing that is relatively universal is the growing presence of internet sourcing. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's, there are certainly communities that are um, handling their own dog sourcing where people in the community are breeding dogs. People in the community are acquiring dogs from breeders in that community that can look a lot of different ways. But then there are people who are finding that the dogs that they want are not being bred in their community. And the internet is a it's sort of, it is, uh, to my mind, it's the new, it's the new pet store, right? It's the new easy place to get mm -hmm. exactly what you want without a whole lot of pushback about whether you're the right home for that dog. Yeah. Um, and it is again, going to be largely those types of websites that are the new pet store are again, 
going to be working via the broker. Right. Oftentimes. Some yep. there actually are, I mean, we could go into, you can actually find commercial kennels that just have their own website and are shipping puppies straight out of their kennel. They're skipping the broker like that also exists. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And I also want to make a side note about internet sourcing as a definition, because there's, there are, um, there have been surveys done uh, by like, AVMA, for example, has some data collection on where dogs come from and had a question about, you know, did you get your dog from a breeder who you contacted over the internet? And just a side note, that actually can look like a couple of different things. And so for those of us in the dog nerd world, I think it is fairly common to do something like go onto Facebook and ask around, you know, what are the best breeders of this breed? Um, I really want to compete in agility. So who's doing the best job of that? Okay. That person's on the other side of the country. So I'm, you know, I have, I have identified them through Facebook. I'm going to email them and, you know, we'll have some conversations. Perhaps the conversations are even on the internet, right? And because that's how Mm -hmm. Zoom is. And then um, they put a puppy on a plane and fly the puppy to you. And that is a very different picture from the other kind of internet sourcing, which is I would really like to get a mm, typically a doodle, right? Or maybe a Merle pug. And I'm going to (laughs) go Google that. Yes. (laughs) Sorry. Or any. I saw one the other day. Long haired. Yeah. uh, I saw a Merle pug the other day. So it's on my mind. Um, So I'm going to go Google it and you know, and go take a look. And and I will do my due diligence by looking at the pictures on the website. And the pictures typically will show that the dogs were raised in a lovely home environment. And then I will pay and receive a dog on a plane. So that's a very different, those are two very different pictures. Extremely different. And to just kind of cover all of our bases, we've also got, we've also got quite a lot of rescues and it's a little bit tough to there there's a little bit of a blurry line between the sheltering world and the rescue world but i think oh for sure the the way that you kind of pull it apart would be that a rescue would be foster based versus a shelter has an actual physical shelter yes it is a blurry line there aren't like decided definitions but for instance there's a lot of rescues that focus primarily on puppies and they're going into communities that do have an excess of puppies for whatever reason. And they're taking those puppies out of those communities and then they are recirculating them through the rescue. Right. My sister has a dog that she got through a puppy rescue and he was taken from a shelter in a neighboring state that has more dogs in their shelters than her state. And it is really funny how many relatives he has on embark, uh, and they keep popping. <laughs> they keep popping up. <laughs> there are a lot of them. <laughs> um, it just keeps happening. But so, but again, the rescue is not where a puppy comes from. Just like a shelter is not where the puppy comes from. That's not right. the source. Actually, it's it's where people right. source to to acquire the puppy. But it isn't where they come from. And then we've got. Yeah. Um, we talked about my sister, so we can talk about your brother. By oh yeah, my from, brother. From what my we brother. might classically classically <laughs> call. A, a backyard breeder, not a phrase that I love because I, because there isn't a definition for it. And also because I think most of the best breeders that I know are operating out of their backyard. So like, I don't, right. <laughs> I don't love it. Being yeah. The, the phrase is used derogatively, highly derogatively on the yeah. internet, on, on social media frequently. I mean, honestly, well, I'll, I'll talk about how I, 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 I don't think we need to be quite so derogative. So my brother had, um, recently purchased a house with his wife and they were expecting a baby. Um, I think at this point we were 
seven or eight months out and he really wanted to get a dog and settle the dog before the baby was born. Um, you can imagine I, I had, you know, I talked to him a bit about how challenging this might be, but I also recognized that if he wanted to get a dog and he really wanted a puppy and bringing a puppy in when you have a two-year-old is also pretty damn challenging, right? So mm-hmm. he ended up finding a, it was a friend of his had gotten a lab golden mix from a breeder and there were, there was another puppy left in the litter and it was a, you know, that would have been a very sweet puppy. And so he suggested that my brother go there and, um, and that is where my brother went and the dog has turned out very well. I really weighed in strongly about getting the dog into puppy class. So I'm going to just say that I'll take some credit for how the dog turned out. Um, also, Lab Golden Mixes is just a lovely mix. They're used for assistance right. dog work. Right. I don't know that any health testing had been done on the parents. I don't know how much socialization had been done for the puppy. The puppy did have some GI issues for the first few weeks, which is, I mean, that is something that can happen to anybody, no matter how hard mm-hmm. you work to prevent it. Although I also am not clear how hard. Uh, the breeder worked to prevent it, but my brother is is very happy with the puppy. And honestly, as much as I tried to push him towards someone who is doing all of the things that we want people to do, that did not work with his timeline. So backyard breeders, I I don't. Did you have a Did you have your own story? Well, it just you know the story that you're telling is essentially that these people are checking some of the boxes for me, but they're they're just not checking all of them. And yeah, I mean, they're, the so dog's think, born in the home. That's I think there huge. are worse things. And it's I don't think it's a surprise that this dog's temperament is nice because both of these dogs are pets who are loved. Yeah. Assume, you know, we assume like if we want to breed them and make more of them, that somebody thinks they're a great dog. And yeah. I think that so that that sort of situation checks some of the boxes for me in ways that a kennel based high volume situation might not. Right. And the, I mean, the, so the other, the other example I suppose I could give of another picture of a, of a backyard breeder um, is my dog, Jenny, who came from um, rural upstate New York. Um, I think of the place where she came from as a farm, although I don't know, you know, how large it was or how many other animals there were, but they had sort of, I think they had about nine dogs and animal control came and said, you have too many dogs. And so they surrendered two of their puppies to the shelter And they were, um, I like to say she was not an oops litter. She was a, the dogs do that sometimes litter. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So that's another way that, that dogs are created, right? So there's just, when we say backyard breeder, it can be all kinds of things. And it, it, in a lot of people use it to encompass the breeder, both the breeder who's like, ah, it happens, you know, oh, too many, sure. go to the shelter. Uh, but also to encompass the breeder, um, like the one that my brother worked with, who probably was doing her her best by what she knew, right? Didn't know what, you know, how to get a dog's hips checked and didn't sure. know uh, how to do genetic testing or how to interpret it. Um, just didn't have that information and felt like she'd been producing puppies and people weren't complaining, you know, yeah, and her dogs, you know, she, I think something I've heard often is like, well, these dogs are really functional. Like these dogs are fine. The vet hasn't yeah. diagnosed these dogs with any problems. Right. And again, sometimes I think that's checked, that checks more boxes than some other situations. Like I do think that the actual dogs in front of us are important to be looking at and not just the piece of paper that you get from the yes. OFA, et cetera. 
So I would and- I would endorse that over a over a pet store dog for sure in a heartbeat. Yes, and as far as the temperament goes, like my sister's puppy that she got through the puppy rescue, I, he's lucky that he landed in her house, which is a dog enthusiast type of person with no children and a very understanding and well-trained husband like this is it's great that he landed there um (laughs) because his temperament's been hard he's been not easy to deal with he's extremely healthy but he's also the definition of a Heinz 57 so he's got like his embark was like I don't know nine or eleven different breeds but anyway I think that you know all of that to say there's a lot of ways to get dogs and the term breeder is kind of just an unfortunate one that unfortunately, like all of these people do. It covers all of these people, all of these people. Yeah. All of these people fall under that umbrella where my sister's puppy came from was the rescue, but the rescue got him from somebody who took him from somebody who produced him. Like somebody is making them. Right. Right. So another, um, you know, we've, that we've already talked about another source is these kennel based kind of high volume registered with the United States department of agriculture types of situation. Yes. And and I think a lot of people imagine those as 100% of them, the dogs are living in squalor. And then yeah. I think the danger of thinking about it like that, um, because that's, you mentioned the Sarah McLaughlin ad, right? Which is what <laughs> yeah. we all we all think of. And I think the danger of framing the conversation like that is that then when you discover that not all of them are like that, you're sort of left with, well, then is it okay? Yes. If you're, it's You're clean. not actually pointing out what the real problems are, in my opinion, right. if you're only looking at these extreme bad situations. Right. And there are extreme bad situations in anything we just talked about. There are extreme sure. bad backyard breeder situations. There are extreme bad rescue and shelter situations. There are, and there are also extreme bad kennel-based high-volume USDA types of of breeders. And we're not talking about the real problems if we're only talking about the extremes. It's very, very important for us to talk about what the real issues are here without framing it in an extremist way that then leaves, you know, then, like you said, we aren't talking about what we really need to be talking about if we're only saying, well, this is clearly bad. Because I have been inside both kinds of these commercial type facilities. I've been inside a commercial type facility that was USDA compliant because I checked after I was there because I was disgusted. It checks all the boxes. It's fine. They were, they'd just been inspected and I am still haunted by what I saw. It was disgusting to me. It was really unacceptable to me being a person who has made my life kind of improving welfare for dogs it still bothers me. And it was like 15 plus years ago that I saw it versus facilities that are, that don't look like that. They look pretty good actually. And I don't like those ones either typically. And that's an opinion that I hold because of certain, the lifestyle that I want dogs to have. And I think it's the Venn diagram. It's where these, it's the things that these two places have in common that is what really needs to be pulled out and discussed. And we don't discuss it when we just go, oh, well, that's a puppy mill and wave our hands. Yes. Yeah, so exactly. So here's, so here's the question of all of those things that we talked about, you know, we don't know what proportion of dogs are coming from these sort of kennel based breeders versus from what we might call backyard breeders. 
we strongly suspect that that the number of dogs coming from the breeders that that Sarah and I are are saying everyone should go to, we strongly suspect there's nowhere near eight million of those. <laughs> because there, when you go to not. someone like certainly that, yeah. right? Because when you go to someone like that, typically there's a multi-year wait list, right? A lot of the time, yeah. And so when I asked myself, so that's all of that, I said we'd have this background. So to circle back to what should the shelter have endorsed? Where should they have pushed people? And while what I really want the shelter to say is, you know, in my ideal world, I would love shelters, all shelters to say, oh, you didn't find the the small low shed dog that you want and need. But here we can point you at some breeders who are doing a great job of producing dogs just like that. I think realistically, that's going to be really a really difficult thing for a shelter to do, right? Because there's not enough of those people to produce all of the dogs that people are buying. So when someone comes to a shelter and they don't have the the thing that the person's looking for. And then we, you know, we on the internet say, well, go find a really good breeder. You have to expect that you might need to wait several years. And it's, it's easy for us to say, well, if you really need to do this right when you're bringing home a new family member and you need to be willing to wait a couple of years for that. So just think about some of the situations that people are in when we ask them for wait to wait for two years. You know, if I was I was actually talking to Sarah because we talked about this all week, um, talking about when I got my first dog, I didn't have all of the information, but I went to a I looked I wanted a golden retriever. I looked at the golden retriever rescues that were serving New England. And the one that was taking in Goldens in New England and and rehoming them in New England had a two-year waiting list. And that was a rescue. That was not even a breeder. That was a rescue. And I ended up having my dog imported from the South because I didn't have to wait for two years. If I'd had to wait for two years, I would have been dogless for two years. It was my first dog. I did not want to be dogless for two years. And I don't think it's really a reasonable thing to ask people to do that. Right now, it's what we have to ask people to do if we want them to do what we're describing as the right thing. So this is what I really want to talk about is if we're asking the shelter to push people towards that type of breeder, then we have to recognize that those people are going to be like, well, but there's a pet store right next door. So what's actually going to happen? Because there's not enough of them. Which is where we keep coming back to kind of what we're trying to do with the Functional Dog Collaborative, which is educate folks about dogs and dog sourcing. And, but also empower breeders who are interested in doing a good job to have all the resources they need to do that. And it isn't, you know, no, we, we can't fix this by ourselves. It certainly needs, you know, more hands on deck, but it is, it is just a, it's a tough question. We don't have enough people doing a great job. And I think some people argue that there's no way for enough people to be doing a great job to produce 8 million puppies. Um, Some people definitely argue that too. With the current infrastructure, that's Mm -hmm. true. And I think we need to take a step back and ask questions about how the infrastructure can change, which is exactly what the FTC Uh, is trying to do, right? Yes, exactly. So, I mean, right now, no, it's it's not going to happen. But I tend to be the kind of person who looks at things and says, okay, well, if, if, 
it can't happen in the world the way the world is, then how do we change the world to make it possible? I do not want to accept that the only way to produce enough dogs is to depend on high volume kennels. Even if we continue to fight the fight to make 100% of those kennels sparkling clean and with enriched puppies, I still don't want to accept that as the answer. I'm not willing to do that. You heard it here, folks. <laughs> so, so let me. You, know, you, uh, you heard it here. <laughs> if you cannot, if the solutions are not available because of the way the world looks, then you don't just settle for different solutions. You change the way the world looks. Yeah. That, is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, Jessica Heckman for president, everyone. <laughs> Queen of the world, queen of the world. Oh, I'm sorry. So yes, queen of the we'll world. be we'll be co queens. Sounds great. I was just thinking that and the other day. It's like if we were co queens, we have this place in shape in no time. I want to quickly highlight. So obviously, we're not in this podcast episode going to go into the ways that the FDC thinks the world should change. I don't want, however, people to leave this episode thinking that we don't have any ideas at all. Uh, we have lots of ideas, and yeah. I've been working hard to detail those in the podcast and on our Facebook group. We started up new Instagram and TikTok feeds. We're trying to detail a lot of that information there, trying to have some conversations about what a good breeder looks like. Certainly things that you can look into. Um, We have a Guardian Homes episode. I think that's going to be a critical part of this piece, having people participating in the breeding of dogs who are not themselves the dog nerd breeders who are making all the decisions, right? Also worth looking into, we have two breeding cooperatives and those are going to be a critical piece. They need to be much bigger, which I say not at all as a criticism because the heads of the cooperatives know that they need to be much bigger, but getting more breeders involved in that um, is going to be critical. We're working on building a data platform to help provide some data about you know, what breeders' practices are and how to help them do things better and provide education and some incentive, hopefully, to start bringing in people. So I, the other thing I want to say is a lot of the way that we approach this on social media is um, if anyone is not doing it perfectly, then we tell them that they are a horrible person who should die. <laughs> and I would put out there, that although we don't have the stats, I strongly suspect a large percentage of the dogs being bred in this country are being bred from this general term of backyard breeders that Sarah and I have Mm -hmm. discussed. That's a very derogatory term on the internet. And I don't want to say, I, I think some people will take this endorsement from me as saying, they're great, no problems. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying if there's things that we think some breeders could do better, let's help them do it better rather than tell them that they're bad. Rather than tell them they have no business being involved in this. Right. I think that's, that's been a big thing. So what we're saying is come join us over at Functional Dog Collaborative and join that, join that discussion. And I think Jessica, you brought us a Patreon question to answer. I do from Izzy. It's a great question. So maybe I'll, I'll take a shot at answering it, but if uh, Sarah, if you have input, I'd love to hear that too. So Izzy sure. says, and by the way, so this is this is the deal with my Patreon. You get on my Patreon and I let you know ahead of time uh, who I'm interviewing and you can have questions for them. So Izzy asks, I'd love to hear both of your thoughts and or any research you find on these topics. Um, she has, and then she has three questions. So let's do these one at a time because it's, yeah. it's going to be a Sounds lot otherwise. Good. So number one, number one, what do each of you think made the adopt don't shop movement so successful 
from a sociological like perspective. So I look at this question and I'm like, well, I'm not, I'm not trained in sociology. Um, My, my guess is because adopt, don't shop is very easy to understand. It's black and white. It's do this, don't do that. There's not a lot of nuance. So it's, it's very, it's a very easy meme to spread. Uh, And it's very animal welfare centric, right? Which is, which is important and which we both support. Do you, what do you think, Sarah? I also think that Adopt on Shop has been extremely well endorsed by celebrities intentionally, Mm. intentionally early on and still. So I think that everything you said is true. And I also think folks who have influence over the general public have been, have been brought in to kind of speak this to, to everyone. And I think that, I think that that's happened. I think this is like, I could talk about this for two hours actually, because I think that that happens. So there's celebrity there's, it's easy to understand. It's animal welfare centric. I also think that the push for spay neuter is wrapped into adopt on shop and Mm. the public trusts the messages coming from veterinarians and the push for spay neuter is coming from veterinarians. And I think that, I think it's complicated but like, no, it, it wasn't a hard sell either. And then also just public shaming. There are even like SNL skits about the joke of, oh, well, what, where'd you get that dog? Like, oh, nice, nice purebred. Where'd you get that? Like it is, <laughs> it is just, there's public shaming, there's celebrity, there's, it is, it was a, it was and is a perfectly marketed message for a variety of reasons. So of course it is prolific. It has been, you, it, you have received it from all angles. Yeah. And, and unfortunately the world we're in today just requires a new message with more nuance. I think. I agree. Uh, I agree. All right. Question two, what kinds of beliefs or mindsets of the general public do you think cause the most resistance when talking about supporting breeders? And to me, I think, I think there's a real, consuming fear that supporting breeders means undercutting shelters and none of us want to undercut shelters, Mm -hmm. but there's this fear that supporting breeders means bringing additional dogs into the world. And that if you bring new dogs into the world, that means that other dogs won't have homes and will be pushed into shelters. This idea of if you buy one, then another one has died. Which I think was part of the very successful adopt on shop movement, and I I think we we kind of just answered this question. I think like the the mindset of the general public is that if you buy a puppy, you're a bad person because you could have saved a life instead. That that's the mindset that is that has been put out there by the adopt on shop movement has been highly highly celebritized and is tough to get away from. Yeah. And talking about changing mindsets, I would change it from, I killed another dog to I've supported the creation of a dog whose, whose beginnings are the best that they can be, which is how we want all dogs beginnings to be. And really helping people to understand that dogs coming from what we would call a good breeder are not going to be in a shelter because of the support that is in place for that puppy for the rest of its life. And so it actually is the solution to the problem. Yeah, I believe that. I believe that strongly. And the the other thing I've seen is that people seem to feel that if you're supporting breeders, then you're not supporting shelters, that it's, it's, um, you could only do one or the other. And so Mm -hmm. 
there have been times I've given talks sort of saying like, hey, it actually helps shelters to support breeders. And people have said, but what about the dogs that are in shelters? Well, we should right. we should continue to help those dogs. I'm not yeah. saying we shouldn't. This is not I'm not saying we should or. do any less for them. Mm-hmm. They deserve, they deserve all, they deserve help and attention and everything that we've been given, giving them, but let's take a look at prevention as well. Yeah. All right. Question three, I've seen quite a few brands and corporations adopt the adopt, don't shop movement to further their brand or sales, depending on their target audience. Subaru is probably the most notable one that I've seen in mainstream media. What role do you think marketing, social media content, et cetera, could have or is having in changing the narrative about breeders and what drawbacks do you see or anticipate? I mean, I think we, you and I were just talking about this, right? And I did want to mention that I, I, it is my understanding that the Adopt Don't Shop movement got a, a huge boost from being featured on Oprah some number of years ago and that through that the mainstream media was a very important part of boosting that movement. And another thing I want to point out is that we don't rely on the mainstream media today to circulate ideas and new concepts the way we did 10 or 20 years ago. Today, we have social media. So that's, I mean, that's again why I've been working really hard. A lot of my FTC time has been going to start spinning up a social media feed. Our Facebook group is great, but it's very much a dog nerd group where we have Mm -hmm. very high level conversations about what good breeding looks like. And for people who don't want to nerd out about dogs, but who just want something, you know, to think about dogs for a a couple seconds on social media as they're scrolling, um, you know, who love dogs, but are not nerds about them. uh, I think that's, that's the group that we're trying to reach with our new social media feeds. And, and I'm hoping that in this world, as opposed to the world of 20 years ago, we'll be able to do that, um, have have success reaching people without having to be on Oprah, for example. Oprah, who famously has always had purebred American Cocker Spaniels, but that's fine. Um, so here's what's interesting, and I think you kind of just said this, but the the brand the the branding and the marketing used to influence us socially, and now social media influences the brands and the marketing. So they are watching what's being said on social media and then they are using it. And so, yes, they use the adoption. They use the like adoption of shelter dogs as a very clever marketing tool because of depending on the people that they're trying to market to. So if you look at like, you know, this, uh, your patron mentions Subaru having the right, having this like adopt a shelter dog kind of thing going on. And then you think about communities that Subaru might be selling their cars to. It's one type of community versus last holiday season. There was a, an ad for uh, a pickup truck. It was probably a Dodge. I have, I have no idea. I don't remember. And there was, it featured a Bernice and a mountain dog puppy. And so we're looking at, you know, they're just, marketing is big, big business, right? And the, we can't even begin to get into all of the nuance that is involved in looking at who you're trying to sell the thing to and what else they care about, because it's really important for you to know. And they're getting that information because you're giving it to them every day for free on social media. Like, and so (laughs) that, so social media is affecting the way that 
the ads are happening. And so I'm actually seeing more and more doodles on TV, the Bernie's Mountain Dog puppy that was in that commercial, you know, things like that. So it's just, I think it's, it's complicated, but I actually think that the marketing and the, the mainstream media follows the social media. And so it's up to the messaging to happen in the social media world kind of first. And that's where the FTC is trying, you know, a small, (laughs) a small social media following, like trying to put some stuff out there, but it, it matters. And it does snowball and getting, getting a few viral conversations going is, is important, does matter, is not necessarily going to get to the CEO over at Dodge Ram, but um, could, could get to your neighbor who might buy a puppy one way, except for they saw this TikTok that you made. And so they seek a puppy a different way. Or who decides to become a guardian home and help become part of the solution. An even bigger part of the solution. Yep. All right. Anything else? I think that's a hopeful, that's a hopeful place for us to end. I think it is. I think this for sure. So thanks everybody for joining us for this conversation. Uh, We of course both are open for, to your feedback. We both have Patreon feeds, both will be linked. And of course on social media, you can find me at the cognitive canine and also cog dog radio and Jessica, where are they going to find you? So we do have the Instagram feed at functional breeding and, um, our new TikTok is also at Functional Breeding. And of course, we have, a, there's the Facebook page, but the best place to have really nerdy conversations would be the Facebook group. Um, yeah. And that is Functional Breeding. Um, so I would encourage you to check out any of those. Perfect. All right. That was that. Thank you. Hey, friends. Some of you have asked how to support the podcast. So we have set up a Patreon page for it. For a small monthly pledge, you help us pay for producing this podcast, and in exchange, you get a chance to suggest questions for podcast guests, and you get early access to podcast episodes. To find out more, go to patreon.com slash functional breeding. You can also help promote the podcast through subscribing to it through the podcast app of your choice and by leaving favorable reviews. If you're interested in supporting the Functional Dog Collaborative more generally, or finding ways to get involved, go to the functionalbreeding.org website and click the support link. Thanks to everyone who has helped out. We could not do this without you. Thanks so much for listening. The Functional Breeding Podcast is a product of the Functional Dog Collaborative and was produced by Attila Mertzen. Come join us at the Functional Breeding Facebook group to talk about this episode or about responsible breeding practices in general. To learn more about the FDC, check out the functionalbreeding.org website. Enjoy your dogs.